0: Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here. We're grateful to the Lord for His presence and allowing us to gather here to hear His Word. So we're in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. This past this past week, actually, the past three days, uh, I was in Atlanta along with uh, Jason and Richard and Sonny, and we were at the G3 conference along with Ron Redwine. I don't know if Ron is here this morning. Yeah, there he is. And uh, had great fellowship, heard some tremendous preaching, and it was kind of like homecoming because not only was I with these wonderful gentlemen, but when I was there, when we got there, uh, we were able to see Ron Redwine and his, excuse me, Ron Fowler and his uh, pastor, along with Chris Lyle and his pastor. So uh, we had a great time. So I've got to stop just a minute and tie my shoe. <laughs> The last thing that I want to do this morning is to follow for this platform. And the reason I say that is because this morning I was standing before my bathroom sink and I was brushing my teeth. Very simple task, and normal, normally, right? I was brushing my teeth and I bent over just a little bit and I tweaked my back. Welcome to the world of 60s, right? It doesn't get any better, I know, I know. For those of you older, it doesn't get any better from this, I understand. So anyway, but I just mentioned that um, just to say that uh, grateful to the Lord for allowing me to be there and to be among uh, so many wonderful people and uh, to be here this morning to enjoy fellowship with you as well. So Romans chapter 10 And we're going to begin reading with verse 14. We're going to read through the rest of this chapter. Paul is writing, of course, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed a report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Father, this morning God is. As we enter into your presence, Lord, we do so knowing that you are a thrice holy God. This is what we have just declared in the, in this song of our faith. And Father, it, it causes us to reflect upon not only ourselves, but Lord, even more importantly, it causes us to reflect upon you. The very idea that sinful people like ourselves could enter into the presence of a God who is thrice holy is beyond our comprehension. And yet that is exactly what you have allowed us to enter into this morning. What we do here is not by any stretch of the imagination insignificant. Not at all, Father, we have gathered here to to meet with you and we have gathered here to hear your word preached. And we are so grateful. So grateful that we are the benefactors of the word that has been preached. It is by this word, Father, that we have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is by and through this word, Father, this means of the gospel. The word that you have brought us into your kingdom. And Lord, you have done this. You have done this, and we rejoice, and we give you thanks. And so, Father, we ask, and we declare our dependence upon you this morning, that we might have understanding, and God, that you would grant us a measure of your grace. First, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Over the last month or so, if you've been paying attention to, to the news, the, the big news cycle which is now nothing more than a trickle, was the debacle that took place in the evacuations of Americans out of Af- Afghanistan. As the current administration did its best to calm the fears and concerns of, of most Americans here in the United States, the mantra that they kept repeating over and over again was that all Americans who want to leave Afghanistan will be able to leave. How many of you remember that as you were watching whatever the source of news that that you might have been looking to. Well, Jen Oshman, she picked up on this mantra and she wrote an article about it. And she said, on the surface, it seems like an odd description. She's referring to this, this question. Don't all Americans want to leave Afghanistan? She writes, who actually wants to stay in a place where the Taliban are figuring out what it looks like to rule again? And most of us would probably say amen to that, right? But what Osman went on to write in her article might surprise you because she goes on to acknowledge that there are indeed Americans who want to stay in Afghanistan. She says she doesn't know how many and she doesn't know the story of each one, but she says there are more who want to stay than you might think. And when we hear that, the obvious question is, What? Why, right? Why? Oshman's response is because they love God and they love Afghans. She says they are missionaries who have already counted the cost. They left home family comfort and security well before the U.S. decided to evacuate. Many, she writes, have been been there since before the U.S. even arrived. They've been all in for years and they have no intention of coming back now. They will live out their days sharing the love of Jesus in a very dark place. They believe that there is no way more worthwhile to spend their days than to preach Jesus Christ crucified, risen and coming again to the people of Afghanistan. They know they are in grave danger. They know they could be martyred. And they believe it's worth it. And if not them, then who? She then uses a little imagination and quotes Romans chapter 10 verse 14. How can the Afghans call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? She recounts the story of a young female aid worker who was a friend of their friends that was killed by the Taliban in Afghanistan several years ago. She was urged to leave, but she refused to do so. One day, Ashman says, a, a Taliban terrorist had hit a gun under a fake arm bandage and entered the clinic where she and other Christians were providing medical care. He opened fire and killed many aid workers, including her. He said he had to. He said he had to. He explained if they kept doing what they were doing. Then the whole country would believe in Jesus. Oshman says. That's why there are Americans who don't want to leave Afghanistan. They want the whole country. To believe in Jesus. Oshman's article I think is a is a good and sobering reminder of why we do what we do as a church. It's a good reminder of why we are mission-minded and mission-driven and why we are willing to put ourselves in peril's way and spend inordinate amounts of money to go to -to hard-to-reach places in order to tell people about Jesus. As the mission statement of our church says, Mount Zion Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. That's the mission statement of this church. And so you have to wonder, is that really true? I mean, is it true that, that we understand that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations? And if that is true, then you have to wonder, what is it that we are doing, not just corporately, but individually, to make that happen? You might say, well, you know... We're involved in making disciples. We we even have a strategy. We call it replicate. And and we're meeting here every Sunday and sometimes even throughout the week. And we're discipling one another. But the statement says that we are making disciples of all nations. That word nations, as many of you know, in, in the Greek is the word ethnos. It means ethnic groups. So really the issue is, are we doing that? Not just are we discipling one another. It's not just are we going to church and are we in Sunday school and are we benefiting from the teaching of the pulpit and are we benefiting from the the teaching that takes place in our small groups as we meet and we put into practice replicate. No, but is it true that you and I are actually willing to go and are we planning to go so that the S-not, the ethnic groups of the world might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ well whether it is or not Romans chapter 10 verses 14 through 21 helps us to see why this mission is so imperative now some of you may remember that when we last looked at Romans chapter 10 that our attention was focused on the last 13 verses And it's in those first 13 verses that Paul makes it quite clear that there are only two kinds of righteousness. There's God's righteousness and then there is our righteousness. And the difference between the two is is really the difference between heaven and hell. God's righteousness saves and our righteousness condemns. And this, as Paul reveals in the first few verses of chapter 10, is why Israel was not saved. They were not saved because they were trusting in their own righteousness. As he points out in verse 3 of chapter 10, they were were ignorant of God's righteousness. And because they were ignorant of God's righteousness, they sought to establish a righteousness of their own. Which led to their blatant and rebellious refusal to submit to the righteousness of God. And that in turn blinded them to the reality that Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Or as Richard Halverson puts it, Christ is the end of the law as a way of attaining righteousness. In other words, what what Paul is telling us in the first part of Romans chapter 10 is that to attain true righteousness or to attain to God's righteousness is by faith. It's not through the looking to the law, but it's through looking to Christ. It's through believing on Christ. And this is the way of salvation that Paul lays out for us in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 10. As Paul says in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what must a person do to be saved? First, a person must confess Jesus as Lord. To confess is to say the same. It means to affirm or to agree. And what we are affirming or what we are agreeing upon is the truth that Jesus is Lord. That is, we're affirming that Jesus is God, that he is the one who is supreme in authority and in power. Secondly, Paul says we must believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. That is, our faith must be firmly rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. It is the the hinge, as someone has said, that, that the whole of Christianity turns. See, the resurrection is a validation of who Jesus is. And it's not just a validation of who Jesus is. It's a validation of what Jesus accomplished. And so Paul says that if we do this, that is, if we confess and if we believe that Jesus is Lord and that he has been raised from the dead, Paul says, without any reservation, you will be saved. Or as he puts it in verse 13, which as I said a couple of weeks ago, is just another version of verses 9 and 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To call upon the name of the Lord, you see, is synonymous with saving faith. So in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 10, what Paul does is he shows us the way of salvation. But here in verses 14 through 21, he shows us the means of salvation. And when I speak to the means of salvation, I'm really speaking primarily of the things that God uses and that God has given to us in order to bring us to faith in Christ. And the primary means that Paul highlights in these verses is the preaching of the gospel and those whom God has sent. And all of this, you understand, is is being presented to us by Paul in order to give us some background for Israel's rejection of the gospel. So if I were to give you an outline this morning, I I would simply point you to two things. First, I would point you to the process. When I speak of the process, I'm, I'm I'm talking about how God brings a person to faith in Christ. The means that He uses. The preaching of the gospel as well as those whom are sent. And then I would point you to the problem which deals with Israel's rejection of the gospel. So let's begin by looking at the process. As we look at the process that, that God uses in order to bring people to faith in Christ, I'd, I'd like for us to go back to verse 13 as we walk through these verses. Because it's here in verse 13, as we've already seen, that Paul makes this statement that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now I think most of us as we read that, we know this to be a significant promise. And it's a promise that we hold to. It's a promise that we believe in. But then immediately, he follows this promise up with a series of rhetorical questions in verses 14 and 15. And the reason he does this is really just to show us how God accomplishes the salvation of sinners. So he begins with verse 13 saying, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this really is... This is the culmination of everything that we'll see in verses 14 and 15. So he's kind of working backwards, so to speak. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This calling, as I've already mentioned, is really synonymous with saving faith. That is, to call on the name of the Lord is actually an expression of genuine worship. We see this in Psalms 105 verse 1 where the psalmist says, oh, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. I mean, just reading that verse, you, you have to admit it comes across as a, as a call to worship, doesn't it? And that's because it is. It is a call to worship. As John MacArthur says, the the word Lord represents God's covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. Therefore, he says, to call upon the name of the Lord was not a, a desperate cry to just any deity, whoever, whatever, and wherever he or she might be, but a cry to the one true God, the creator Lord of all men and all things. And indeed, this is precisely what we see here. To call upon the name of the Lord is in essence to call upon the whole person. Not just certain aspects of the person, but the whole person. Which means that that when we call upon the name of the Lord, we are placing the whole weight of our lives on everything God has revealed himself to be in Holy Scriptures. But this whole issue of calling on the name of the Lord generates... The first rhetorical question that Paul raises here in verse 14. He says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Paul says a person cannot call upon Christ if they haven't believed on him. Another way to say that is that you can't rightly worship what you don't know. Granted, you can, you can pretend you're worshiping. You can go through the motions. You can jump through all the ecclesiastical hoops that the church may present to you, you can dot all the doctrinal I's and cross all the doctrinal T's. But listen, if you don't believe, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know of Him, it's impossible to call upon His name. James Montgomery Boyce says that intellectual understanding without commitment is not true faith, but neither is commitment without intellectual understanding. You know, oftentimes in the church, we're, we're guilty of emphasizing over and over again that when we believe on Christ, this is not just intellectual assent to who Christ is. As it's to minimize the intellectual, intellectual nature and process that takes place in a believer's life. What Boyce is telling us is that if we truly believe in Christ, then our minds must be engaged in knowing who Jesus is and knowing what he has done for you. I mean, how can how can you and I really and truly enter into worship with with God and to worship his son without knowing who his son really is? And without know and without knowing what he has done for us. This you see is the kind of belief that Paul calls for us here in verse fourteen. We can't call on the Lord for salvation unless we have we have content. That's what, that's what Boyce says. He says true saving faith has three elements. Number one, it has intellectual content. Or intellectual knowledge. Number two, he says it involves personal assent or agreement with that content. And then number three, it involves trust or commitment. We can't call on the Lord for salvation unless we have content, unless we have knowledge. Unless we know something of that person. Some of you have been here long enough, you've heard me use this illustration before. You know, if, if I were to say to you, um, Joe loves you, probably the first question that would come in your mind would be, Joe who? Right? I mean, it means, it, it means a lot for us to know who is Joe? We have to know something about Joe before we can ever even feel about that statement. It might be wonderful for us to hear that, Joe. You might say, well, that's great. I'm glad that Joe loves me. Who's Joe? You understand, it's not until we know Joe that the words that someone says to us that Joe loves us, that those words actually have real meaning. And this is all that, this is all that Boyce is saying. He's simply saying, unless we have content or knowledge, we can't really enter into worship. We can't really call upon the name of the Lord. Unless we have personally ascended or agreed with that knowledge. And and unless we are trusting or have committed ourselves to who He is. You see, that is really the, the essence of saving faith. The essence of saving faith is that we are followers of Jesus. Remember this, when Jesus was... When Jesus was calling his disciples to himself, he said, If anyone desires to come after me, remember that? If anyone desires to come after me, if anyone intends to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what's the last part? Follow me. How is it that we can have people in our churches today who don't believe? That to trust Jesus Christ is to live obedient lives. How can we have people like that? How how can we say that we know Jesus Christ and yet we are not obedient? Clearly at at the very root, at the very source of our understanding of salvation is that we are committed to following Him. We are followers of Jesus. It's not just a statement that we make. It should be the description of our lives. Which brings us to the second question that Paul raises here in verse 14 again. He says, And how shall we believe in Him of whom, we, and of whom they have not heard? That's impossible, right? I mean, you can't believe in Christ unless you've heard from Him. And this is the primary emphasis that we, that we see in the language and the grammar of our text. Paul's not saying, How can you believe in Christ if you haven't heard about Christ or of Christ? No, what he's saying is, how can you believe in Christ if you haven't actually heard Him? Leon Morris says, the point is that Christ is present in the preachers. To hear them is to hear Him. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 10 verse 16 when he, when he sent out the 70. He said, he who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Paul gives us the same, the same understanding in Ephesians chapter 4 where... As he's writing there, he's making this distinction between true believers and false believers, really those who, are, who walk according to the Gentiles, who walk in, in the futility of their minds and the darkness of their hearts, and those who have learned Christ. And so the division comes after, after he spells out and gives us a description of those who, who are not of Christ. He says to those who are of Christ, but you have not so learned Christ. He says, but you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So it raises the question, how how had the Ephesians heard Christ and been taught by him? Well, they had heard Christ and had been taught by him through the preaching of Paul and the other apostles and teachers. In other words, they'd they'd heard the word of truth. They'd heard the gospel. And through the message of the gospel, they had heard Jesus. And the same is true for us. You see, the reason that, that we came to know Christ, the reason that we were able to learn of him is because we heard Christ speak to us through the inward call of Christ, through the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. The truth is, we, we hear Christ speak and teach every time we read the word. We hear Him speak and teach every time we gather corporately and receive instruction from His word. And the reason that we hear Christ speak and teach is because, as Paul says in Ephesians 4:21 is, the truth is in Jesus. That is, whatever truth is, Jesus is the embodiment of it. He is the subject of truth. He's the speaker of truth. He is the spirit of truth. But this raises another question in Paul's mind. He says, if people need to hear before they can believe, then how shall they hear without a preacher? Or, or literally, how shall they hear without someone preaching? Paul's emphasis here, you see, is is on the priority and the importance of preaching. Hearing Christ speak through the Word is critical. And if that is true, I mean, if it is true that hearing Christ speak through the word is critical, then somebody, right, somebody has to preach it. Somebody has to proclaim it. You remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21? He says, it pleased God. I love that, don't you? He says, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You know, we can say simply, how does God bring people to faith in Christ? He does it through, primarily through preaching. You know, that's that's important for us to see and to understand in this day in which we live where where preaching has been minimized, has it not? I mean, in our culture. You know, we have today, we have people who scoff at preaching. Who make fun of preachers. Been said that Martin Luther once said that that the church is not to be a penthouse, but a mouthhouse. <laughs> not a penhouse, not not a house where we sit around writing. He wasn't, he wasn't denigrating the you know the, the need for people to put you know pen to paper, but he's just simply putting the priority where it ought to be. The church is not a penhouse, it's a mouthhouse. That was Luther's way of emphasizing that. The primary function of the church is not the reading or the writing of God's word, but really and truly it's the preaching or the heralding of God's word. And this is precisely what, this is what the word for preaching conveys. It's the, it's the Greek word karuso. It literally means to cry out loud, to proclaim, to declare, to, to announce, or to summon someone to something. I came across this article just this, this week by gentleman by the name of John T. Rhodes. I don't know him at all, but he's a, he's a pastor in, in England, and he was writing from, uh, actually writing as, I guess, as a guest writer for Mark Dever's ministry, Nine Marks, and he gave this really interesting introduction to speaking about the primacy of, of the preaching of God's word. He said, one Passover in the first half of the first century, a traveler watches from a distance as three men are crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem. What does he learn? His eyes will tell him little. Other than some unusual weather patterns and a quicker than usual death in the case of one of the two men. All he notices are a few ordinary looking Jewish men being executed by Rome. But once he comes within earshot, everything changes. Amongst other things, he hears the crucified men talking. One admits his guilt and asks the central figure, apparently called Jesus, to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. He hears this Jesus' promise that the criminal will that very day enter paradise. He also hears the centurion, overseeing the crucifixion, declare that Jesus was the Son of God. After a while, he hears Jesus announce that his work is finished. And then he commits his spirit to his heavenly Father. Through the traveler's eyes alone taught him little. Though the traveler's eyes taught him little. His eyes, his ears, excuse me, have opened the door of salvation. As it was with our fictional traveler, so it is with us today. And then he quotes verse 17 of Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. You see, what we have there is this clear and distinct emphasis on the primacy of preaching. This is not talking that Paul is sharing with us. This is not sharing that he is talking about. This is announcing. This is proclaiming. Which brings us to to Paul's last rhetorical question in verse 15. He says, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? Paul says, if preaching is is indispensable to hearing and believing, and it is, then it stands to reason that someone must be sent to do it. And behind the implication that someone is to be sent is the implication that there is a sender. And who is the sender? Well, ultimately, the sender is God himself. Now, we all know well that that God uses means and, and that is true here in this case. God accomplishes this work of sending through his church, doesn't he? Because he charges the church with the responsibility of setting apart those whom God has called to go. We see it in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Remember, as God spoke to Jeremiah, he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Literally, he says, I separated you. And then he says, I ordained you. We could say he set Jeremiah apart to be a prophet to the nations. Acts chapter 13, many of you know this account. The scripture tells us that the, that the church of Antioch, that, that, that Paul and Barnabas reached a point to where the church gathered together. And as they ministered the Lord, it says in verse 2, and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. God, you see, through the agency, through the means of his church, sent Barnabas and Paul. And Paul himself speaks of this in Galatians chapter one, his own his own calling, his own sending, when he said that it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal in his son, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see, the reality of what Paul is conveying to us here is that that this sending action, although God uses the church, it all begins with God. So the picture of God's work in calling people to Himself is, is complete. And what is made crystal clear to us is that God doesn't make this happen by simply snapping His fingers. No, He uses means. He uses people. He uses His Word. As John Stott points out, if you look at Paul's questions in reverse order, this is what it looks like. Christ sends heralds, heralds preach, people hear, hearers believe, believers call, and those who call are saved. The Stott says, unless some people are commissioned for the task, There will be no gospel preachers. Unless the gospel is preached, sinners will not hear Christ's message in voice. Unless they hear Him, they will not believe the truths of His death and resurrection. Unless they believe these truths, they will not call on Him. And unless they call on His name, they will not be saved. Salvation, you see, is not merely God's sovereign election. Not at all. To speak only of that would be a a disservice and an injustice to what the Scripture teaches us. It's also about God's means and our response to those means. It's about human responsibility as well. And this is what Paul celebrates in verse 15, quoting from Isaiah 52 verse 7. He says, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. The original context of this verse was, was an expression of, of, of celebration and joy over what would happen when those who were exiled to Babylon were, were released from captivity. But here Paul applies it to those who are obedient to God's call to preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings, which is actually taking, taken from one word, and that's the word evangelize. You see, in essence, what Paul is showing us is that you and I are called, I mean, particularly myself... And others who are called of God as preachers of the gospel are called to evangelize good things. The point is, is that if the feet of those who declared the release of the Babylonian exiles was described as beautiful, then how much more is that true of those who are called of God to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? You know, it makes me wonder as I... As I contemplated that particular verse. When was the last time that you complimented me on my feet? <laughs> but you notice that this celebration of those who are called and sent to deliver good news doesn't last very long. Now as we see in verse 16, Paul's whole demeanor and his tone changes. And the source of this change in demeanor and tone is due to Israel's problem. So what was Israel's problem? Well, simply their problem was that they had not obeyed the gospel. He says in verse 16, But they, referring to Israelites, and this would refer to any person who is separated from Christ, but particularly to them, Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, and he's quoting from Isaiah 53 verse 1, Lord, who has believed our report? Now just hearing that may cause you to wonder or even ask the question, what report is Paul referring to? He's quoting from Isaiah 53 verse 1. So what report is he referring to? Well, it's the same report that Isaiah spoke of. Now, I don't have this on your screen this morning, but let me just ask you, if you would, just turn to Isaiah 53. And if you look at the verses that precede verse 1, where Isaiah says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you look at the verses that precede chapter 52, beginning with verse 13, you can see that, that the context is Christ. So you look at verse 13 and you see that Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. It's the language of deity, isn't it? Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his appearance was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. He shall... So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths at him, and what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Clearly we know that who Isaiah is referring to is Jesus. And this is affirmed as he goes on in verse, in chapter 53, verse 2, he says, For he shall grow up before he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, He has no form or comeliness. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid Him, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was blameless. He was perfect. Yet It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He speaks of his resurrection, doesn't it? And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. John MacArthur preached on this passage at G3 and he made the comment that among the Jews when they come to Isaiah 53 it's been noted that Isaiah 53 is the graveyard of the rabbis. They don't know what to do with it. And in many cases what they do is to ignore it. This you see is the report that, that Paul is speaking of. This is the report that Isaiah rejected. Not Excuse me, not Isaiah, but Israel rejected. This is the tragedy of the gospel. The tragedy of the gospel is, is that not all believe. Not all obey the gospel. Some do, but not all. And, and this, by the way, is an important distinction. Namely, that the hearing of the gospel that leads to salvation is not merely the hearing of, of sounds or the hearing of a man's voice. But rather it's a hearing of Christ with a view toward obedience. And we know that when a, when a person's hearing is not merely biological. We know that if they are truly hearing, they believe. That is, they obey. They obey the Lord. In the gospel, when Jesus calls people to believe and repent, is more than an invitation or an offer. It's a command. He commands us. Jesus commands us to to believe and repent. This is where Israel failed. They, They did not believe. They did not obey the report they had received about Christ. And to reinforce this, Paul reminds us in verse 17. It's just really a summary of the verses that we've already looked at. How saving faith comes to us. It comes to us, he says, by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Literally what Paul says is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the spoken word of Christ or about Christ. And this is why we preach the gospel, you see, to to all people. The preaching of the gospel is how people are saved. And it's the only way that they are saved. This is precisely what the Israelites rejected. They rejected the spoken word about Christ. Not only had they rejected the truth of Christ's resurrection, but listen, they had rejected the truth of his deity, that he was indeed the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God in human flesh. So, why did the Israelites not believe? Why did they reject their Messiah? Well, this is the very issue that Paul addresses in the remainder of this text. He offers up two questions as a possible answer to this problem. And with both questions, he gives a swift reply. Notice the first question addresses the issue of whether or not Israel had heard the gospel. And we see it in verse 18 where Paul says, But I say, have they heard? That's the question. Had they heard? Did Israel hear? What does he say? Yes, indeed. And then he quotes Psalms 19 verse 4 as proof, which says, Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. If you know anything about Psalms 19, you know that the first part of that, really verses 1 through 6, deals with natural revelation. Natural re- revelation is God's revelation of himself in nature. And then the second part, beginning with verse 7 deals with special revelation. And special revelation is God's revelation of Himself in Scripture. So it's kind of interesting that Paul is quoting here from from verse 4 of Psalms 19, not verse 7 and beyond. But the reason I think that he does this is not to confuse God's natural revelation with God's special revelation, but to simply point out the universal nature of God's revelation. That is, as Leon Morris says that Paul believed that the gospel had been widely enough preached for it to be said that representatives of Judaism throughout the known world had heard it. And so in this way, Paul's quoting Psalms 19 verse 4 to simply say the word has gone out. The word of Christ has already gone out. And therefore the Jews had no excuse. They could not claim that they had not heard. Which brings us to the second question. And the second question that he addresses is the issue of whether or not Israel understood or whether they had knowledge. And we see this in verse 19 where he says, But I say, did Israel know? And Paul's intended response is, yes, they did know. He doesn't say that literally here in our text. But he implies that by quoting three Old Testament passages. First he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 32 verse 21 which is taken from the song of Moses where God speaks through Moses saying, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Clearly God is speaking of the Gentiles. Secondly, he quotes Isaiah 65 verse 1 and verse 20 saying, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. And then thirdly, he quotes from Isaiah 65 verse 2. And we see this in verse 21 where he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In the first two quotes, Paul reminds the Jews that their excuse of not knowing or not having knowledge of God's way of salvation is bogus. It's bogus. Because the Gentiles knew it, and they found it, even though they didn't seek it. Remember this from from chapter 9, verse 30? What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. And the last quote, Paul reveals that the real reason the Jews had not believed is not because they had not heard, nor was it because they didn't know but rather it was simply because they were a disobedient and contrary people. Simply put, they weren't saved because they were a hard-hearted, stubborn people. Some of you may remember these words from Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 37. As Jesus was looking out over Jerusalem, He cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Why were the Jews in Paul's day living in unbelief? Why are they living in unbelief today? It's because they're not willing to have Jesus as their Messiah. And you understand, folks, that's the diagnosis of every single person apart from Christ today. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're still in your sins, there is only one reason that is the case you're unwilling. you're unwilling to come to faith in Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ beckons you to repent and believe let's pray Father this morning God we